people in his book lectures to my students, Charles Spurgeon passes on some of his seasoned pastoral teaching to young preachers to give practical wisdom for the ministry. And it's, it's really, it really is gold. It's excellent stuff by Spurgeon, just like much of what he has written and preached about. But in it, Spurgeon recalls some preachers in one of the chapters who lamented the fact that their listeners are bored and uninterested with their sermons. He basically says to them, before you jump too quickly to blame the hearer, and sometimes that's the issue, right? He says to them, what about the preacher's job to draw the listeners in? Because the word is, is powerful. He said, the problem may be that the preaching is simply irrelevant to our lives and boring. And he says, that's on you, preacher. Well, in order to mitigate that risk here as much as I can this morning, our sermon today is actually about the weighty truth of your trial and potential death sentence even before a holy God. Picture this. You are standing before God. And by the way, each and every one of us will stand before our great God. We're each accountable to God. Either we will hear standing before him the words guilty, depart from me, I never knew you, to eternal hellfire even, or we will hear that we are justified before a holy God and forgiven by him and on our way to be in his presence. This is your trial, church. Spurgeon said, a man on death row with the judge about ready to declare his sentence, is not bored and snoozing and careless about what is going to be said. So I encourage you to lean in, church. This is your trial. Our passage today has everything to do with your standing before a holy God. Will you be acquitted or will you be condemned? Where do you stand? Are you right or righteous and forgiven before a holy God? Or are you on a boat without a paddle, heading towards the upcoming waterfall of destruction? Please, every one of you, friends, pay attention to this sermon. Your verdict is in question. This relates to you. It relates to me, all of us. And there's nothing more important for us to hear, nothing more practical than this. So turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians 2, verses 15 to 16. Would you stand for me, with me, out of reverence to the reading of God's word, if you are able. Galatians 2, 15 through 16 says this. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. 
Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, help us all here today see the glory of this passage. Press it upon each of our consciences. Help us to consider what is being said in your word. Help us to consider our trial. And help us to consider you today. We ask, Lord, that you would open eyes and hearts to see and to savor and to be thankful about these great and eternal truths. And if anybody's here who doesn't have a solution for their trial today, would you give them that solution in this passage? We say this in Christ's name. Amen. These words that we just read from the Apostle Paul is a transition from the testimony that he's been giving and the defense of his apostleship right to the heart or the crux and the purpose for his writing this letter of Galatians. And his reason for writing is to warn and to rebuke the Galatian churches away from the false gospel of justification by works and towards the true gospel of justification by grace through faith. And there it is, summarized here, just in a few glorious words that we just read. And let's see it again in verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We can't get enough of that verse. We can read it over and over and over again. We need to be reminded about it over and over and over again. It's clear enough, but we want to see it, and we're going to break it down the rest of our time this morning into two halves, starting with what justification isn't, and then moving on to see what justification actually is. This is important. It's about your trial. So number one, let's see this. Believers are not justified by works. It's clear in the passage that we just read. And I hope you could appreciate how clarifying these verses are when it comes to the good news of the gospel. And also, I want you to realize the tension here of that these truths that we're seeing here, that we just read, that we stood and read, these truths took some time to hash out in the history of the church. For as we saw last week, what happened? Paul rebuked. Peter, Barnabas, and the rest of the believing Christian Jews in Antioch for their hypocrisy and for their fear of man withdrawing from table fellowship with the Gentiles. We saw 
that they were living out of step with the gospel. Paul is recounting here in Galatians his rebuke and also giving the grounds for his rebuke and reminds Peter of the gospel that his actions were contradicting. Because Peter's actions what and the rest were out of step with this gospel message. What's the big deal with what they did last week? As we saw, their hypocrisy and even racism of, of pulling back from table fellowship with the Gentiles, it portrayed what? The big deal is that it portrayed a false gospel. The actions of Peter pulling away from the blood-bought Christian Gentiles implied. What did it imply? That men and women are made right before God by observing Old Testament Jewish Mosaic law expectations. They're like, I'm not eating with you because of the Old Covenant. They were missing the gospel. They were out of step with the gospel. But Paul, thankfully, called that false gospel implication out. He put them on blast. And people give a lot of bad reasons for answering the question, how is a person made right or righteous or justified before God? We saw Peter's contradiction by his bad example as it relates to this last week. But others, when they think on this topic of how a person is justified or made right before God, give a variety of different bad answers and think a variety of bad thoughts as it relates to this very important topic, as it relates to your trial. Others answer differently, right? Think in your mind right now how you would answer the question of how a man or a woman or yourself, how are you made right before a holy God? What's your answer? Think of it in your mind. Put it there. Hopefully you've got an answer, but you've got time here and the filler words that I'm giving for you to get an answer in your mind. How is a man or woman made right before a holy God? What is their case? What is your case on judgment day? Picture yourself now standing before God. What would you say? Would you say, well, I belonged to a Christian family? Or would you say, "Ah, I went to church my whole entire life, as far back as I can remember? Or would you say, well, I'm not perfect, but my good deeds outweigh my my bad deeds, and I'm certainly not, not as bad as some of these other people? Or I was baptized on this date, and here are my baptism credentials. Or would you say, I tried my best, and God will do the rest? Or, I never went to see this or that kind of movie or show. Or I never used this or that kind of language. Look, whatever reason that you give, if it's something about what you did or even didn't do, you're falling into the trap even that Peter was falling into, and many others throughout the world and even right now are falling into. Be honest with yourself about your your answers to that. And let the word of God change your answers to that. In fact, I want you to see that there's good news for bad answers to that because Peter 
as we saw last week by implication in Barnabas and the rest, repented for their sinful actions, for their gospel-denying actions. In fact, everything that we're seeing in the book of Galatians is all really prep work for a future public meeting where Peter will declare, along with the other leaders in the church, the truth of what Paul said here in Galatians 2.16. It's all before this meeting, and it's prep work for it. As John Stott even suggested, he says, for this incident in Antioch precipitated the future council in Jerusalem described in Acts 15. It is possible, even he suggests, that Paul was actually on his way to Jerusalem for the council while he was writing this epistle. As he's writing Galatians, they're going to this big meeting. Hasn't happened yet, but it's going to. Paul had taught boldly and discipled and corrected and rebuked Peter right there in front of the whole church, as we saw last week. But Peter and the rest were won over by his rebuke, and Paul saved the day. How do I know that? Well, one reason is that Peter basically plagiarized Paul in the public Jerusalem council meeting that would happen after this rebuke and said basically the same thing as Paul said here, and he took the same position. I say plagiarized loosely because the whole point is that that... They were preaching the same gospel message. They believed in the same Lord. They loved the truth of the gospel together. And even with the stumblings and errors that we saw in Peter, he got back on track, as Peter usually does. So let's see it for ourselves. This is a crucial area in the history of the church where where the, the issue of this comes up again about how people are made right before God and how they're not made right before God. Let's see it in Acts chapter 15 in verses 1 through 5. It says this in verse, in, verse 15, uh, in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, look at it, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's bad teaching. That's false doctrine. Verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed now to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, And brought great joy to all the brothers. People are seeing and hearing the Gentiles are now being saved. And people were rejoicing. Talk about joy that we celebrate in in Christmas. They're rejoicing because Jesus is saving the Gentiles. The heathen. uh, Those who who weren't a part of the people of God. Verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. You see, the same old problems are happening again and again. These issues were going to recur over and over again. 
And in some ways, not necessarily in circumcision and food laws and things of that nature, in some ways they still remain today. Different works, different things that are people require upon people to be saved or justified. Remember the private meeting that the apostles had that we saw a few weeks ago in Jerusalem, this private meeting. The false brothers snuck into that business or members meeting, so to speak, to get poor Titus to be circumcised. They were spying out their freedom, but all the apostles rose up together and said, enough of that, and they put it into that. Now, these false teachers continued on and argued that others need to be circumcised in order to be saved or justified. They need those works to be right with God. They were arguing justification based on works, not not justification based on the gospel. They were arguing work-centered justification, not gospel-centered justification as our series title indicates. And here's where we get to see Peter shine. He was a coward, as we remember, denying the Lord on three different occasions, and Jesus Christ restored him, thankfully. Didn't he? Remember? Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. And Jesus commissions him in his ministry even after his failure. And then we see Peter later was a coward again, denying the implications of the gospel by withdrawing from table fellowship with the Gentiles because of fear of man, as we saw last week. But now he gets a chance to redeem himself. Let's see it from the text in Acts chapter 15 now in verses 6 through 11. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But hear this. Hear the echo in Peter's rebuke to, Paul's rebuke to Peter here. But we believe that we will be saved, what? Through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will, just as the Gentiles will. You see, Peter boldly and publicly stands up and says what Paul told him in Antioch just a little bit before in a public way. Peter comes around eventually. In this transitionary season of the church, God was moving in the lives and hearts of the apostles and other disciples to clearly demonstrate this very, very important doctrine of justification to them. So, how is a man or woman made right before a holy God? Well, as Paul reminded Peter after his sin and contradiction... And as we just saw Peter declare in that public Jerusalem council meeting, which would come later after the book of Galatians, 
that men and women, Jews and Gentiles alike, are not justified by observing the works of the law at all. For God saves both Jews and Gentiles by grace through faith. And in fact, if you rely on the opposite, if you rely on those works, a death sentence is even pronounced against you or anyone who would rely on the works. So if your answers to your questions had anything to do with you, I want you to reconsider. Don't you dare take that upon yourself. You can't do it. For Galatians 3.10 says this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Cursed. And Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, what? Comes knowledge of sin. So church, let this be a warning, not only to the Galatians, but to us here in Gallatin. If Peter and Paul and Barnabas and the rest of the church in Antioch that were there in the Jerusalem council later, If all of them were not made right before God by the works of the law, then neither will you. Learn this lesson now, church. You will not be saved by you just doing you. Or by anything good that you can do. Your works, however good, and you're only fooling yourself, by the way, however good you think that they are, will not justify you. This is humbling, isn't it? Because we live in a culture that doesn't like to ask for help ever. Or doesn't like to admit when we're wrong either. Or even admit when we're in trouble. But when it comes to your death sentence, your trial... You and I, we need a lot of help because we're in a lot of trouble and you and I cannot do it on our own. Your working and willing and trying and doing will not cut it. It won't ever. The law just shows you the mirror of your sin. Hello, look in the mirror. You're a sinner, the law says. It cannot justify you. Learn this lesson, church. This leads us to the second half And point number two, so we saw how believers are not justified, not by works. Now we're going to see that believers are justified, what? By grace, through faith. See it again, Galatians 2, 15 to 16. The gospel put forward here in a little nugget for us to read these few verses. Let's see it from the passage. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Do you catch Paul's reasoning here? He reminds Peter right after rebuking him, in the midst of Peter's foolish hypocrisy, right there in front of everybody, he reminds him 
how he was saved to begin with. Paul reminds Peter of his judgment day. I ask you to think of your courtroom judgment day. Paul asked Peter to think of his. And he says to him, look, we both know that we are ethnic Jews by birth with all the rights and privileges of the children of God under the covenant given the law of God and the sign of the covenant and circumcision and all of the law. And many commentators kind of put out the irony here and the sarcasm here kind of, and I agree with them. There's a little bit of that going on here. He says, we know that we're privileged Jews and not those Gentile sinners. If you remember last week, I kind of joked in the introductory illustration about the heathen who weren't wearing the Christmas colors. By the way, I saw many of you added that today. Uh, I'm not going to use that same illustration, so it only counted last week. But if you remember there, there was a little bit of that tongue-in-cheek going on. He's like, even though we're privileged Jews at birth, we're born, we've been privileged, we have all these wonderful things. He looks at Peter in the eye and he says, that is not enough for us, Peter. You know that already. You've taught that. I've heard you. We just got together for a meeting, this private meeting in Jerusalem. And, we, and what do we do? We agreed on that gospel together already. I know you know it, Peter. Paul reminds Peter that his Jewish identity wasn't enough. It wasn't going to pull muster for him. And then he directly connects with Peter, telling him how both of them, all of us, even for the Jews and how Jewish that they were, they were born and all the good things that they had, he said, hey, we are not justified by our identity or by our keeping of the law and the food laws and the purity laws separating from Gentiles or even circumcision itself. None of that, Peter, is going to cut it, and you know it, Paul tells him here. I don't care what works of the law you might try to highlight on other Ten Commandments or others or anything of that. It just simply won't do because we all fail and we have sin. The law shows us the mirror of our sin. It doesn't save us. But what does cut it, church? What does save and justify? What will cut it on our day of judgment, in our trial? What is it? As a judge slams his gavel down and pronounces either guilty or not guilty, what's going to be the difference? Well, it's justification that we're seeing here. Justification is God's declaration with his gavel metaphorically coming down on our count, each and every individual one of our count, if we're Christians, declaring us what? Not guilty. Paul reminds Peter of this good news. He's like, it's because of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone that you're, you're made right, not by any of these, these laws. And he's like, by the way, Peter, he, he said, look, we know this together. We believe in Jesus Christ alone. Remember that? Remember that gospel? Don't, don't abandon it. This is how we are justified before God, by faith in Christ. What an important, clarifying, helpful correction that Paul made that day. 
And not only did he call out the error and the hypocrisy, he's not like, you are such a hypocrite, Peter. Get out of here. He didn't in there. He called him out. Yes, he was bold. He addressed his error. Yes, but he did something else. He reminded and pointed Peter and the rest of them that were there in public and, and doing the same sinful things as Peter. He reminded them of the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. In order to be justified, he's like, we trusted Jesus, Peter. Now, I want to clarify a few more things about this doctrine of justification before we land the plane here of our sermon, applying it and remembering our courtroom scene and court date again. God declares us, you and me, if you're a believer, just, not guilty, justified. The moment we first believe this good news gospel. That's when it happens, right there. Think back about your testimony when you first believed in Jesus. That is when you're justified. Hence the well-known Reformation's slogan, justification, what, by faith. And I might add, all Protestant churches and denominations owe a huge debt of gratitude to the likes of Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and the other reformers who stood like Paul, even like Peter later in the Jerusalem Council, for justification by faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation, as well as today, teaches something different about this very important doctrine of justification. In Luther's day, they were even selling indulgences to be paid for to get people so-called out of purgatory. Literally, the church was receiving purgatory buyouts from these people, taking payments for friends and relatives and others to supposedly get them out of that bad situation. What a scam. Reminds me of some of the TV preachers today who do the same kind of thing, scamming people out of their money for ridiculous and sinful and false gospel and untrue reasons and ways. In the Catholic Church, you see, they put forward a system of penance where people seek to confess and then do works to deal with their very sins. Do you see how that is contradicted by Paul here in Galatians? Sure, our Catholic friends will speak of the grace of God, but then they add to it. Certain good works that are necessary for justification. The Hail Marys or Our Fathers, whatever else. Some of you come from Catholic backgrounds and, and, and know the system a little bit. And you know what this is all about. You know what those works might be in that context. Adding to the equation. But all evangelical Protestant Christians, at least in their confessional statements, stand together against any form of this works-based justification. All of them do. I read confessions and different theologians from a variety of traditions, from Lutheran to Anglican to Presbyterian to Pentecostal and Charismatic and to different forms of Baptist denominations even this past week. And all of their confessional documents 
catechism, systematic theologies, church doctrine, and other official church documents defined and defended justification by faith alone. What a blessing it is that we can have unity in this gospel even across denominational lines. If we're together for this very important question of how a person is made right before God. But let me be clear. This is not an issue just of Catholics. In fact, every other religion or cult or belief or wherever outside of Protestant Christianity is some form, some way or another of justification by works, what you do to get you right before their version of God. It's important for us to realize this doctrine because it's central to the heart of the gospel. It's so important for us to know why we believe what we believe and to know this very important question as it relates to our judgment day, our trial. And I want to be even more clear on this doctrine. It's not that faith, your faith or your belief, somehow in and of itself makes you just righteous before God in, 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 in and of itself. As the theologians explain, faith is actually the instrument or it's the way that justification is received. It's through faith. That's why we say by grace, what? Through faith. It's the instrument. It's when you believe, you receive that declaration. When you trust in Jesus, you receive it. The belief is not a work. In fact, as Ephesians 2 says, it says it's a gift of God. And elsewhere, even your very faith is a gift from God. So you can't boast about it. We see that in other places. No boasting even for your faith. Why? Because faith is not your own work. It's a receiving. It's, a, it's an instrument whereby you receive that declaration, that hammer down, justified. You trusted in my son. And you received justification through faith. But the ground, the foundation that we stand on, that we, that we are rooted on, what is that? Well, that basis of our justification, the reason that we can get that declaration is what? It's nothing other than the cross of Jesus Christ alone. It's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. All revealed in what? Scripture Alone, the reformers pointed us in the right directions as it relates to this. And let me tell you something else, church. The hymn writers got it right. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. On Christ... The solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? What can justify me? What can make me right in this trial before a holy God? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look for thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Or since we're in the Christmas season, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Do you see how this passage relates to your eternal sentence? Your courtroom hearing, church. The only way that you and I can have hope in life or death is by trusting in Jesus Christ and his death for sinners like us and clinging to him by faith alone and receiving the full grace of God to our accounts. And not only do we get forgiveness, church, it goes further than that. Not only do we get the eternal judge to pound the gavel on our account and declare us not guilty if we trust Jesus, but we also are given, get this, a righteousness that is not our own. We are declared not only guiltless, but perfectly holy and positively righteous as well. But I ask you, how can that be? For I have sinned so much. You have sinned so much. If you're thinking that, I'm glad you do. Because you realize that you're a sinner in need of something outside of yourself. All believers know that they are sinners saved by grace, and we echo what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, and it says this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul knew it. Do you know it? Do you realize your sin before a holy God? Do you? Or do you just brush it off? Do you just... Minimize it. Compare yourself with others. Tell yourself little stories about how you're really okay. Appease your own conscience. Hear me. I want you to realize your sin before a holy God. And I want you to realize that you don't have to plead your own case if you're a Christian. You don't even have to get your act together for justification if you are a Christian. You don't have to earn favor before God by doing so-called meritorious works if you're a Christian. And by the way, you don't have enough works to cut it. Let me just repeat that again. But you might be thinking, Daniel, not only have I not done enough good works like you've been mentioning, but I also have done so many bad works that I'm not even able to keep up with and keep track of all the sinful and wicked things that I've done and thought. Unthinkable things even. 
You may have that in your conscience, in your heart, in your mind, in your past, even right now. But I've got good news for you. Take the nothing in your hand that you have because you have it. In fact, take even all of the wickedness metaphorically and the evil that you've done right in your hand. And you couldn't put it in your hand. This is a metaphor. You've got way too much. Wouldn't fit in this whole room. It wouldn't fit. You've got way too much, but metaphorically put it in your hand and hand it off to King Jesus right now. For Jesus takes your sin, my sin, and we get his righteousness. The moment you believe in this gospel good news, it's referred to by many as the great exchange. You might be thinking, is that really true? Even with all my sin, all my guilt, all my wickedness, all my thoughts, all the problems, all my issues all piling up. Paul tells us in Romans 5, 6, he assures us, he says, For while we were still weak, are you weak? Are you weak? I'm weak. For while you are still weak, at the right time, what? Christ died for the ungodly. It's unthinkable. It's amazing. The ungodly, there's good news for you, dear Christian. Jesus died for the ungodly so that when the ungodly put their faith in Christ, the ungodly can receive the declaration of justified by God based on Jesus' work, on Jesus' righteousness. As Luther put it, Jesus' alien righteousness. Why? Because it's Jesus' righteousness and not your own that you get. It's not your own goodness. As some traditions teach, you become righteous. You become good enough. You become transformed in your righteousness and things of that nature. But on the topic of justification, that's not what's going on. We get an imputation of somebody else's righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Not blended with your righteousness. Sure, we're going to go on towards good works and, and glorify God as Christians after we've been justified. But that's another topic that we'll discuss next week or into the future. But, but he says there's an alien righteousness, Luther said. We're relying upon Jesus' righteousness, not our own. So Luther also rightly says that we are at the same time righteous and sinners. Righteous in Christ, we have Christ's righteousness, and yet remaining sinners because we are not perfect in and of ourselves. Of course, we know that. So do you see how this relates to your verdict? You in of yourself are guilty. And you can receive a guiltless or rather a perfect and justified impeccable courtroom examination through simply trusting that Jesus Christ is your only hope and righteousness in life and death. And let me encourage you, church, you don't have to wait until you die to receive this verdict either. Dear Christian, you are justified by God on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He declares it when you first believe. If you're a believer, you have this good news on your account already right now. Everything else pales into comparison to this big problem of your sin and guilt because you've been justified right 
now. And you can say along with King David in Psalm 32 and verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Remember, you are not righteous in and of yourself. You are a big failing sinner in and of yourself. So humble yourself before a holy God and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Quit running from him. Go to him. Quit denying your sin and acting like you have it all together. Don't do that because you don't. Go to him. Swallow your pride. Abandon your good works and deeds. Stop seeking to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get it done on your own because you can't. Run to Jesus alone for justification. Believe in what he did on the cross for you alone for your justification. Place your hope and faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone because he is your only righteousness. Let's do that together and let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us the solution to our problem. You have answered our issue of our future trial by right now here, even in the present justifying Christians here in this room. Not because they're good, they're sinful, but because you're good and your son was perfect and he died for them. Help us to realize and glory and worship you in light of the gospel. Help us to see this good news is really good. Help us to proclaim it to other people. Help us to be encouraged by it in times of discouragement. Help us to glory in our Redeemer. You are our Redeemer, God. We trust you alone to be made right before you. You've given us the solution. We love you. We trust you. And help us to leave from here with that, lifting up our hearts. We say this in Christ's name. Amen.